0: Hello, and welcome to Blogging Ahead's Nation. This is the latest edition of Dresbert, I hope. Uh, I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and I also write spoiler alerts for The Washington Post.
1: And I'm Heather Holbert, and I run the New Models of Policy Change program at New America, and I am the reason that the U.S. is technologically (laughs) falling behind.
0: So to explain to our viewers, we have been trying to do this for a little bit, and have run into various snafus. Um, I'm not going to cast aspersions as to who is responsible, but you, you know, it. it I, I'm glad we finally have surmounted them, and it just shows, you know, that if America puts its mind to it, it can accomplish this kind of thing.
1: And how is that for a great lead-in, Dan Dresner, <laughs> into talking about
0: trade? Yes. So as it turned out uh, yesterday, let, let's go back to last week.
1: Uh, <laughs> rewind machine
0: uh let's go to the wayback machine where last week uh i believe last friday or actually no two weeks ago uh uh the friday before last um it looked like uh trade promotion authority was dead in the water because the house democrats had rebelled against it and voted against trade adjustment assistance which had been paired with uh trade promotion authority and let me just start by apologizing right now because you're about to hear like God knows how many acronyms, you know, TPA, TPP, uh, TAA, and so forth, uh, that'll come flying out of my mouth. Anyway, um, after that failed, there was a whole series of articles explaining that Trade Promotion Authority was dead, 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 and was never going to be passed again. Um, Last week, however, uh, Obama apparently huddled with John Boehner and uh, Mitch McConnell, and they came forward with a new proposal to pass Trade Promotion Authority cleanly without it being attached to trade adjustment assistance, um, with the idea that once Trade Promotion Authority was passed, Democrats would realize that they were screwed because TAA is supposed to expire in September, and if TP, if Trade Promotion Authority passes, uh, you know, essentially the Democrats have lost the hostage that they were using for trade adjustment assistance. I confess, Heather, right now I'm distracted because I'm hearing lovely birds on your side of the conversation. It it just sounds really pleasant, and so it's it's a nice overview. Anyway, uh, this all came to a head because TPA did pass the House last week. Yesterday was the cloture vote for Trade Promotion Authority, which is the one that requires 60 votes, and essentially required that at least some pro-trade Democrats trust uh, Mitch McConnell and John Boehner, that they will eventually bring TAA to a vote and that it will get through. And apparently just enough trusted them Uh, Because it passed the 60-vote threshold, which means all it needs is majority support, which is pretty much a given, I believe, uh, on Thursday. So uh, after a long, uh, arduous, uh, seeming never-ending battle, it looks like the president will have trade promotion authority and, knock on wood, trade adjustment assistance will also be passed. Uh, So we can now, you know, herald the return of bipartisan compromise in the United States, right, Heather? Well,
1: I'm now going to say something fairly heretical about this, which is that on each side of the trade debate, you have a small number of very knowledgeable um, ideologues. And I mean ideologues not in a partisan way, but either in the sense that, you know, sort of know all the reasons why trade works and is great, quote unquote, or all the reasons why trade doesn't work and is a disaster, quote unquote. And in the middle, you have a bunch of people with a lot of power who really don't know and who are presented with these views from both sides and really don't know. And in part in this particular case, because it's incredibly hard to judge a trade agreement that you don't know what's in it. So um, despite all the claims on both sides that, you know, this was a great victory, either it was a great victory of principle two weeks ago or it's a great victory of principle today. This is entirely transactional,
0: what you've just seen. I know this is shocking. I'm I'm genuinely shocked. I mean, I guess the the my reaction to this is is twofold. On the one hand, I'm actually genuinely surprised that this that the, that it got through. In the sense that, essentially, this required both you know D- Democratic uh, members of the House and Democratic senators to trust John Boehner and Mitch McConnell. Which I do find interesting because one of the, you know, the sort of hoary cliches we've heard over the last five years is that there's rising political polarization and neither side can communicate with each other. You know, the fact that this really is a sort of trust exercise in that Boehner and McConnell do at some point have to deliver and bring TAA forward. And the fact that that was sufficient is weirdly heartwarming, I guess, or, or you know, it, it's it's nice to know that, in fact, trust is not completely eroded, I, it, irregardless of the actual issues involved, um, that it is nice to know that, in fact, when Mitch McConnell says this is actually going to happen, that a sufficient number of Democrats believe him, that that would be inclined to vote for this no matter what. Um, that said, the other thing that I, I kind of think about this is that this is really the last gasp of the sort of standard political model through which trade liberalization has gone through the Congress. Um, which is to say you're right, that that this has generally been a sort of ideological exercise on both sides. And one of the general problems with these kinds of trade agreements has been the massive overpromising by members of the executive branch um, or pro-free trade advocates about what these deals are supposed to deliver. Um, and it's usually, care, you know, couched in the language of, oh, trade will produce this many hundreds of thousands or millions of jobs, when in fact the effect of trade on jobs is at best secondary. Um, and I would also add, this goes on the negative side, where you know you have various wild-ass claims about the degree to which trade is presumably, you know, destroyed hundreds of, of thousands and/or millions of jobs, when in fact Um, You know, very often it is other factors like, let's say, automation or uh, technological based skill change. Um, But the real problem is that essentially the way these agreements have always gone forward is that you essentially make sure that there are sufficient benefits concentrated to corporations that will therefore lobby fiercely for their passage in the House and Senate. And the problem is, is that I'm beginning to wonder if we reach a point where the stock of trade liberalization is sufficiently high so that these corporations kind of feel net about the whole thing. And therefore, that, that sort of eliminates the political juice in favor of trade liberalization and does not undercut the rising, you know, uh, degree of, of people who feel like they're facing concentrated losses, namely labor.
1: Well, I, I agree with you that that we've reached a tipping point, and nobody should think because it worked this way this time it can be gotten to work this way again. I would frame it a little differently, um, it, rather than the people who feel concentrated losses just being organized labor, because organized labor, as you know, is continuing to lose um, net power and influence you now have a group that is growing in power and influence through what we'll lazily call the tea party that okay. also feels that it's a net loser from trade and 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 puts trade into a right-wing anti-corporate populism that that can um, under certain circumstances, combine with the sort of organized labor anti-corporate populism right. and the outside organized labor anti the Elizabeth Warren anti-corporate populism, if you will. So, so the the concentration of there's more power centers, there's more anti-trade power centers than there used to be, even though each one of them is maybe smaller. And on the on the pro side, you know, one of the sort of ugly little truths about TPP in particular is that it's not it's not broad liberalizing of trade that benefits lots of different industries. Um, It's focused in on, you know, a few sectors and a few sets of rules that aren't even so much about sort of trade in the classic way that you learn about it in econ one hundred one or two. Right. It's, it's, so it's, it's, it's benefiting specialized sectors. And so those sectors on the one hand I mean, have immense power, but potentially narrower reach. But the other thing that I think you see here is that those sectors aren't used to conducting big public campaigns because they don't have to. Hmm. So what you saw was when you had a minute where anti-trade folks could sort of get out and play to their strength, which they did very well two weeks ago, then they won a skirmish. But the kind of long run structure of how the financial industry, in particular, but not just them, invest in politics, you know, meant that this long run outcome was always more more possible than it seemed. So if you wanna, I mean, and the thing as as someone who is basically who is pro the idea of trade liberalization,
0: <laughs> I like the way you phrase and, that.
1: Huh? And um very skeptical about some of how it gets carried out and what gets sort of, what gets stuck into agreements under the name of trade liberalization. Um, both sides, I doubt that either side will, and this is something I find very depressing, but but both sides really should sort of go away and ask themselves what the American coalition for their position looks like and what the content of it should be. Because the fact that this is such a content free debate
0: really doesn't, doesn't serve, doesn't serve anybody. This actually gives rise to a separate question, which is that I think one of the, I mean, in in some ways it's somewhat surprising. I think Mm -hmm. to me that president Obama has really, you know, he's, he's put a made, he, he, he's thrown his weight behind this in a way that I don't think I would have expected to him to have done even a year ago, where, you know, he always made, you know, soundings about, yes, we, I need trade promotion authority and we've got these trade agreements and so on and so forth. But he's really, you know, in the last couple of weeks, he's, he's been very emphatic about it and, and gone on the hustings and, and making speeches about it. But the thing is, is that the, the argument he has made primarily about this has been strategic and not economic. Um, which is to say the notion of we want to be able to write the rules of the global economy, not China. And, you know, it's been report after report has been made that essentially the administration has been trying to sell democratic members of Congress on this, not based on the economic gains or, you know, minimal losses, but rather the notion that this is an an element of grand strategy. Um, And what I find fascinating and or depressing is that that has had almost zero effect on the way that people are voting, um, which is to say that it is contrast to perhaps the, the arguments that were made, let's say, during the Cold War, when admittedly we faced far greater threats about reasons why the Marshall Plan or GATT, you know, various rounds of GAT uh, should be passed and so forth. Um, what I find interesting is that essentially the strategic logic for these kinds of trade integration agreements, which is not insignificant, I mean, it, they, they do provide some kind of reassurance that way, uh, essentially has zero rhythm now in Congress. Well,
1: I actually would dispute that a little bit. And I think if you go back and look at the list of senators who flipped and voted yes yesterday, you'll notice two things. One is that a lot of them are from the West Coast, uh, where the benefits of trade with Asia are much more evident and, are, and trade right. is more broadly popular yeah. than it is in the heartland and, and out east. And second, that you'll find a group of senators that, that do um, see themselves as strategic thinkers, Um, You know, I was uh, Mark Warner and Tim Kaine, for example. And that's a great example because, you know, Kaine and Warner have staked out kind of different positions within the Democratic Party. Um, And, you know, Kaine considerably to Warner's left, Um, but that they both sort of flip around on this and and Kaine is someone, Kaine, and this is an interesting challenge that, that progressives face on trade, right? Because Mm -hmm. Kaine is someone who is working hard to to increase congressional oversight over U.S. use of force. He's someone who's been more skeptical about about Syria, about Iraq, about staying in Afghanistan. And so for somebody like Kane, and this gets back, I think, to your to your point about Obama, the the trade and economic levers of power are the alternative to, you know, invading and occupying society. Right. And and so,
0: yeah, no, go ahead.
1: It actually so that so on the one hand, that argumentation did work with just enough now. But the other point where I think you're totally right is, you know, during the Cold War, for better or worse, whatever you think of that ideology, it was being argued and reinforced all the time. This administration, I think, genuinely intended to make the argument that you, what you want to do, the smart way to exercise your power as the U.S. is through economic levers rather than military levers or economic levers first mm-hmm. rather than military levers yeah. first. But through one thing and another, they have spent very little um, of their rhetorical capital on it. So then you're sort of stuck at the last minute trying to bludgeon members of Congress into doing something that you haven't created the the rhetorical and
0: conceptual environment for them to do. That's interesting. So you're okay. I mean, because everything I have read suggests to me that in fact, they have made that, that's the rhetorical strategy they've been using when they talk to Congress, but you're right that they actually haven't made the broader, you know, sort of argument uh, publicly on this. Um, And indeed, in some ways, the real problem is, is that they actually have talked a little bit about economic statecraft. The problem is, is that 95 percent of what they talk about when they talk about economic statecraft is sanctions, um, which is not useful in terms of this kind of trade debate. Right.
1: And again, think about when you see the president going to a broad audience on international issues. It is always war and military related. You know, when when do you do right. um, from the really big commencement addresses to the addresses from the Oval Office to, you know, the press conferences? You, this this hasn't been the primary theme, which even is- in the sec- second term, it hasn't right. been the primary theme. And and yes, there's reasons for that. You know, when you're committing American troops, that's what the media pays attention to. But if you wanted I mean, and they did want and they do want and it is a cornerstone of his his views about the world. Um you have to you have to get out there and sell it.
0: Right, and furthermore, it's you would argue I mean in some ways I think we're sharing the frustration, which is is that if there's been one theme in, in terms of Obama's foreign policy uh, speeches, it's the notion that the military lever has been vastly overused and therefore we should be more judicious about it. But the way you do that is not just by saying we will be cautious in terms of our military options, you also have to propose an alternative at that moment. Um, and in that sense, you would have hoped to have seen a little more talk about not just negative economic statecraft in the form of sanctions, but also positive economic statecraft in the form of developing long-range strategies to bolster our allies in both Europe and the Far East.
1: Well, and I will add another piece to that, which is my my frustration as, as a Democrat um, and as a liberal, that, you know, other pieces of economics, you know, we shouldn't have been fighting about what the U.S. was going to do about the atrocious labor conditions in Vietnam, sort of out of nowhere at the last minute in a trade agreement. That should also be a core piece of our economic statecraft. Similarly, this administration cares intensely about global warming and in other contexts has really, you know, done, I think, the very best it could under Horribly difficult, both domestic and global conditions, so where the hell was the environmental context of a trade agreement where which is part of the u s it's a lever of soft power that we have and and why why Although were those people re- excluded at the beginning? why didn't the u s approach the negotiations? why didn't the Obama administration approach the negotiations with the full range of of smart power levers that we have, which include you know human rights, labor rights the environment green technology why were those all frozen out i mean it was it was dumb
0: well okay but wouldn't the wouldn't the standard answer to that have been two things the first is is that likely our trade partners were not super keen on talking about these things uh for a variety of reasons but second i would assume that republicans in congress would also not have been uh, terribly enthusiastic about this so could you have actually had a coalition assuming that they had staked out the bargaining position they had that would have actually a negotiated a successful agreement, which by the way still hasn't been completed yet, but B have gotten through Congress.
1: Well, I don't believe that you could have negotiated an agreement with fabulous labor and climate provisions. Um, because as you say, other countries, um, other countries trade establishments are at least as captured by interests unfriendly to labor in the environment as ours are. But you could have you could have gone in with those folks at the table and that would have made a powerful statement all by itself globally again appealing to the people in asia whose side we want to be on saying you know look Look at the example the U.S. is setting. And from a cynical point of view, I mean, like it really would have been so hard to have those representatives in the room and then say, look, guys, never in a million years are the other countries we have to negotiate going to, you know, yes, we can put those positions forward and here's what we think we're going to be able to actually get. And you would have, you know, inside the tent rather than outside the tent, basically. Mm -hmm. I don't have, um, unlike many, I mean, I certainly don't have fantasies about what you could get in an agreement. But um, inside the tent would have been smarter. It also would have been a a way of showing a different kind of global leadership. And I would love, I would love to see Republicans in Congress arguing that they were going to vote down a trade agreement that was acceptable to business and that was acceptable to the Obama White House because it was too good for workers. You know, I like, yeah, let's dare them to do that. Hmm. I I really, I, I don't see that ever, you know, ever actually
0: happening. Well, speaking of fantasy agreements, Heather, um, <laughs> Oh boy! Uh, this week is also the uh, week of the U.S.-China Special uh, Strategic and Economic Dialogue. Um, I wonder what they'll be talking about um, in the sense of, of it seems like every time this week comes up or every time this dialogue comes up, I have to read, you know, think piece after think piece about uh, the proper way that the United States should uh, um, approach China on this sort of thing. And, which actually gives, segues into the question I will ask you, which your, was your objection from the previous one, which is: Do you feel there was an interesting piece in the Weekly Standard a month ago by Will Inboden um, and Dan Blumenthal um, arguing that essentially the Obama administration had abandoned the sort of human rights plank of the Sino-American foreign policy? Um, and these are serious guys, and they're not, you know. Th- their argument was, is it look, it's, it's not like we're saying this is going to work automatically, but uh, or, or that it's even necessarily going to work in the short term. But it is clear that the sort of traditional let's trade with China, China will get rich and therefore it will become their more liberal uh, theory does not really work in the case of China. And then maybe we should be a little more proactive on this point. So I'm curious about your thoughts there.
1: Yeah. So it is a time honored ritual that the serious people from whichever party is out of power make that <laughs> argument fair enough. and then and to be fair, it is also a time honored ritual that when your party is in power, there are some designated people within the administration whose job it is to make that argument and get squashed internally right. um, and that is absolutely a cross partisan um, phenomenon. Um, I should say it's also a time-honored tradition to come up with really interesting ways to try to promote civil society and human rights in China and see them either not work or work, frankly, in ways that are so small and diffuse that, you know, who knows whether they worked or not. You can't really claim anything for them in public. And if you do claim anything for them in public, it'll just hurt the people that you're trying to that you're trying to support. So, um, you know, yes the Obama administration, if there's a, if there's a seesaw, um, which there is, um, they have definitely gone to, to one side of it. Um, and, but I don't think, I mean, it's not like the Chinese government sort of thinks that the U S has decided forever that we don't care about these things. I also think, um, it's going to be an interesting, you know, sort of moment to look at because on the one hand, I mean, I find the conversation about China difficult because um, no, on the one hand, absolutely the claim that I was part of making in the Clinton administration, that if you open China, open to China economically, it's going to liberalize politically mm-hmm. the politically part of that equation. Absolutely. We were wrong. Yeah. Um, socially, are more people in China living freer lives than they were 20 years ago when we passed China, free china uh, PNTR? Normalized and PNTR? Absolutely they are. Does some of that have to do with influence from overseas? Yes, it does. So I think actually the mistake that we made, um, which a lot of others made, is to, to assume that you couldn't separate social freedom and political freedom. And in a funny way, I mean, we have the same thing in, in, in the U.S. In a, in a different way where we continue to see progress on some social issues and backtracking on other sort of political aspects of, of individual freedom. So, you know, there's a way that there's a way that this is there's a bigger there's even a bigger thing than ooh what the Obama administration does um, at work here and and that china is is riding that wave so that was a there was a long and and not terribly coherent That's the danger of blogging heads that your thoughts are coming straight out of your mouth before you organize them but uh,
0: here we are no that was good i would say no, the only thing i think you were missing um I, I think this is the other thing that people on both sides fail to appreciate which was the extent to which as china grew rich it would also grow more nationalist um which is to say this is not just about the Chinese Communist Party suppressing dissent. It's also the fact that ordinary Chinese um, potentially still you know, are see themselves as loyal and patriotic in terms of uh, the way that China advances its interests in the world. Um, and so therefore, something like what Xi Jinping is doing in terms of the South China Sea uh, might actually be supported even in a, in a democratic China, much less uh, the, the current China. Um, and so that the notion that somehow broad-based economic interdependence would temper nationalism, I'm not entirely sure is true. In fact, there are ways in which you could argue that the Chinese leadership is more aware of that constraint than the broad-based Chinese population, although that's a, a, a separate, uh, separate and long conversation that could be had.
1: Well, there's an interesting argument there, I think, about that, you know, and that we could see that attitude toward China being the last hangover of the 90s, mm-hmm. Um, you know, in that in the '90s, we tended to discount nationalism as a force, or to see it, you know, where it undeniably emerged in the Balkans, to see it as a, as an atavistic throwback that nineteenth century the, foreign yeah yes yes yeah that after the Cold War we were gonna we were it was a a minor sort of footnote um, footnote in the concluding chapter of history right. right? So there's no question that the strategy toward China in the 90s um, underestimated or underplayed the extent to which Chinese nationalism and the resurgence of Japanese and Korean nationalism, by the way, Russian nationalism, um, we can throw that into yeah. Russian nationalism yep. would 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 play a role. Yeah. And, and Russian nationalism, because, you know, remember, Russia was supposed to be able to join NATO by now.
0: Right.
1: If you were if you were European anyway. <laughs> um, so
0: so the, you know, I think I think all right, I think we've reached consensus on this, but I was going to ask. You, yeah. Well, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was actually going to suggest pivoting to the Middle East on that topic, okay, because the, the sort of resurgence and atomization of nationalism and how that how that plays out. Um, it's worth you know, two, two things that I think, well, three things that I think are worth noting in the in the Middle East in diminishing order of importance. Uh, number one, the Kurds have had a very good couple of weeks um, from the elections in Turkey to some military victories in Syria uh, and it, I think it's it's more and more interesting to ponder, you know, on the one hand, um, there's the problem of what do we do about the Sunni-Shia divide, but if it turns out that while um, Arabs, while the powers in the region are focused on the Sunni-Shia divide, the Kurds are quietly creating a de facto state, and there's the intensity of anger in the Arab world, directed probably at the US fairly or unfairly for not having done something to stop that while you know the for the US the Kurds are one of the few useful fighting forces in the region right. you you can see you can see a really big dilemma or you can see a really big problem setting itself up there so that's kind of thing number 1 thing number 2 to keep an eye on is um The Al-Qaeda-linked groups in Syria really went after the Syrian Druze Mm -hmm. this week, full force. And Syrian Druze matter because they straddle the border with the Golan Heights and because over the years they have been quite a good regional ally for Israel. So um, you had these incredible scenes in Israel of um, Druze storming ambulances, taking people from Syria to hospitals because the Druze communities assumed that they were Syrian Arab um, non-Druze fighters and, and actually storming ambulances and trying to kill patients in them. Um, and the, the closer this inches to the Golan border, the harder it gets for Israel to stay out of the fighting. And once, you know, the more you have Israel involved, the more problematic it gets for the U.S. So that's factor number two. And factor number three, which is the least important but got the most ink, is that the former Israeli ambassador to the U.S. is trying to sell a book.
0: And doing a damn fine job of selling the book, I would add. I mean, he's – I mean, how many different outlets has he, like, either interviewed or, or published excerpts in?
1: I kind of lost track yeah. at a certain point, but all of the excerpts are um, sort of unloading on the Obama administration and on the president specifically um, in a way that is really – you know. The, it's funny, the book and the excerpts make a lot of claims about things that are unprecedented in the U.S.-Israeli relationship. But a former Israeli official unloading on a sitting U.S. president for this long is is absolutely unprecedented in the
0: relationship. Is it actually unprecedented? I mean, I, this, this is the part where I think there's, there's a fair amount of historical amnesia involved. I mean, if you actually take a look at the gamut of, of uh, U.S.-Israel relations it's not like this is the only time there's been a point of contention. I mean, you can argue that it's been worse now, and that it's certainly been more public now. But, you know, I, I remember Moshe Arens writing a, a memoir in which he blasted the George H.W. Bush administration for interfering in Israeli domestic politics because of the fact that they wanted uh, Yitzhak Shamir to attend the Madrid Peace Conference. Or, you know, uh, um, the degree to which Clinton had to sort of strong-arm Netanyahu to sign the Y River Accords, or for that matter, the fact that, you know, uh, the Reagan administration is selling AWACS to Saudi Arabia and then recognizing the Palestine Liberation Organization. Um, this is not the first time these countries have butted heads. So
1: that was a fantastic summary, actually. That That's a clip that should be clipped and saved there. So what what you're right, Professor Dresner. Um, you set me up, didn't wh-
0: you? No, Sorry. <laughs>
1: What is but you I do think the the crucial difference is perhaps well no I think the one difference is that we live in the age of social media so all of this happens so much faster and louder yeah, but I do think even Aaron's memoir I mean just the that you publish the first excerpt of your memoir in one of the u s newspapers of record ah. and then you spend I mean it's very unclear to me how the guy had time to do any media for the book in Israel, given how much media for the book he was doing in the, in the U S so
0: that's a larger market not, for him.
1: Well, yeah, but it, and the fact that his Aristotle, um boss, um, the prime minister did not, it was asked to disavow the book and its contents and, and didn't do so mm-hmm. that you, you have to ask yourself whether this is, this is a campaign um, in Israel or is this another salvo in a campaign to shift the way Americans and American Jews view the US relationship with Israel? And is this actually part of a a campaign to change? I mean, speaking of interfering in other countries' domestic affairs, I think, I mean, we all ought to be past complaining about that at this point. But should this be viewed as as a a salvo in a campaign in the US?
0: I mean, The one thing I would suggest is is that as much as this has always been written about as the notion of this is part of a large scale, you know, uh, attempt to somehow turn um, the American Jews away from the Democratic Party, they've been one of the most loyal, you know, blocks of Democratic voters uh, beyond African Americans for decades now. Um, I wonder if this is so much about that as it is about two other groups for whom this sort of exercise really does a great job of rallying um, which is really really wealthy Jewish Republican donors um, and evangelical Christians um, for whom this does seem to sort of be like the n- nice kind of red meat stuff that that works but I'm not sure it actually shifts voting preferences all that much
1: no you're you're absolutely right that both of those communities are really crucial to the balance of American politics right. and This is um, absolutely red meat for them. Um, I do wonder, both with a presidential coming up in which there are a couple of states, only a couple, but a couple in which Jewish voters in addition to Jewish donors matter. But also um, because there are some big, big potential um, milestones coming up in terms of how this lame duck Democratic administration deals with the government of Israel. Um, you know, one of them being vote potential votes at the UN, um, what happens another, another being, um, efforts that are or are not made to restrain our European allies who seem to be moving forward, moving ever closer to, to, um, refusing to trade with some, with some aspects of, of Israeli, um, industrial and, and tech production. So um if 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 the if the Obama and the Obama administration has been um putting out signs or at least sort of things that can be read as signs that they're going to take a substantially harder line on Israel than it has been traditional for US administrations to do in the past and I do think there is the thought that that action might flip some American Jews in a way that previous ones have not now I'm not sure that's actually the case mm-hmm. but given that you have I mean if you think of it from the point of view of of Oren and others that um that you know in the long run in the long run they don't want to be the creatures of American evangelicals they want American Jews rather than American evangelicals who remember their ultimate view on what role the state of Israel plays in, in God's plans is is not so congenial to, to one if one is a Jew or a resident of the state of Israel. So so as much as in to an American, this is all about the evangelicals, you know, to to an Israeli, it can't be all about the
0: evangelicals. Right. Um, I mean, let me ask you one. I, I, I apologize because we. we i've fallen right into your trap which is we've skipped over the really important events in the middle east and we're naturally talking about israel and the united states and domestic politics but i have to get going and i do want to ask you one slightly provocative political question going forward which is um does say what you will about oren's book and i I think there are ways in which is obviously exaggerated and i'm not going to defend you know the netanyahu's administration's uh Ways in which they've they've uh, been passive aggressive and just downright aggressive towards the Ob- this
1: is going to be a really good butt dress. Yeah,
0: I know Obama administration. But it is also true that the administration that the, that the Obama administration has in many ways demonstrated a hostility to Netanyahu and to the Israeli government that I have not seen in quite some time. Um, Both in the form of leaked statements, you know, in which they characterize them as chicken shit or, you know, the the sort of fittest peak after Netanyahu won re-election in the spring. And, you know, let's assume that the administration winds up deciding that they are not going to defend Israel and the United Nations the way they are. Here's my question for you. Does that actually benefit Hillary Clinton in the following sense? I know, I know. In that it actually does allow her, it, it 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 allows for a point of contrast. In other words, um, that on the one hand, if the, if the Obama administration doesn't do these things, it potentially removes an attack line for Republicans, um, and so that potentially I can see how that would benefit uh, Hillary Clinton. But on the other hand, if the administration does decide to uh, uh, to let the UN do, you know act in a negative fashion towards Israel. It also allows Clinton to potentially go after uh, the administration saying, I would not be doing this if I were president and, and sort of a way of standing as a point of conscience. Uh, so which would benefit the potential Democratic nominee?
1: So I have two answers to that. Okay. I mean, in terms of which would benefit a potential Democratic nominee. Could be anyone's. Um, yeah, no, if you look and I'm I'm but I'm deliberately saying yeah. that because it's about different factors than personality mm-hmm. or gender or anything oh, right, else. Sure. And I think the, the the key just from a really focused political perspective is that um we are now back in a situation where Americans trust Democrat trust Republicans more than Democrats on national security. And so as long as you have that, you would prefer not you would prefer not to be fighting on national security. You would prefer to be fight you would prefer sort of attention to be focused on areas where Republicans are falling down on domestic policy because that's where you're strong. Mm -hmm. So from, from a pure politics point of view, no, you don't want to have to spend any airtime on this issue. It's just, it's a God awful issue from a political perspective. And you'd really rather, you'd really rather get it off the table from where you and I come from in terms of giving, giving a presidential candidate space to, have, yeah. you know, lots of room to maneuver and then implement whatever smart policies he or she chooses where he or she, when he or she comes into office. Yes, you're right. And, um, as far as, as what Obama might choose to do. And in a funny way, it would actually benefit a Republican also. Yes. Um, in that, you know, a Republican, if one is elected, has in some ways a, an equally large challenge, which is making good on the expectations that are going to be had of, of him. Uh, sorry, Carly Fiorina, uh, of him by the pro-Israel wing of the party, and at the same time working with the Arab states in the region right. as 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 he would as he would need to do. So, you know, in some ways, Obama doing that is a favor for everybody except the political consultants who desperately don't want the conversation to be about international issues.
0: Well, I will say this to depress you a little bit, or. I don't know if you saw the the NBC's Wall Street Journal poll that came out last uh, yesterday or two days ago, but it, it suggests two things. The first is, is that uh, Republican and Democratic voters place radically different priorities on what they think is important going forward, yep. Uh, yep. which is, and it's the Republicans that care about foreign policy more. I think it's safe to say. But the second thing is, is that I think this is I, I am someone who I am someone who studies foreign policy and am generally skeptical about the notion that foreign policy winds up being a big issue in an election i'm beginning to wonder if this foreign policy winds up being a bigger issue than i would have expected in this election paradoxically because the economy is improving to the point where the economy is no longer a critical issue um, now i i can see various ways in which democrats can say what are you talking about the economy is, is you know still in a a bad state but the fact is is that it is significantly better than it was in 2012 um, and really really much much better than it was in 2008. And so it would not surprise me if as a result that the problem is, is that we as voters tend to sort of bank that and think, well, OK, what's going to happen going forward? And foreign policy is the area where things don't look quite as good.
1: The way I would frame this is that um, voters still have a lot of economic anxiety just because the way the economy now functions is is more anxiety promote, pro- provoking for everybody okay. than it used to be, so you've still got a tremendous amount of that anxiety, and with without obvious bad economic news it's going to flow more back and express in security anxieties, but that mm. might be. That might be a topic with which to start off our next Blogging Heads um, sometime in July.
0: That sounds great. Have a lovely uh, end of June and and, uh, July.
1: Thank you. And um, the next time I see you, I think we'll have an Iran deal.
0: Oh, that'll be. We can talk about that. We'll see. (laughs) All right. Take (laughs) care. Bye-bye.